Welcome everybody back to another episode of the recap with KLF. I know it's been about two weeks since you've heard from me. We are switching this segment to go every other week just to give you guys a little bit of a break from lots of sometimes monotonous news or you just I think we all in this industry have so many inputs that I want to make sure that when we're hopping on on this segment, you're getting actual quality inputs and not just a bunch of terrible dad jokes from me and half-baked opinions. But today I am super excited welcoming one of my favorite people in the industry to join me because last week we were both at the same conference, the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo. That is why you didn't hear from me last week. So I figured I'd bring him on and we'd talk about kind of what we did at the conference last week, things we heard in the actual industry. And then we do have some news to go over today and nobody knows how to how to have a hot take better than Philip Jackson, who is on hey. the mic with me. Hey, <laughs> give our audience a little bit of a lowdown on who you are. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. And we actually met for the first time in person last Crazy. week, which is weird because you have that sort of, you you feel like this familiarity with someone you've known for a very, very long time online, but then you see them in 3D. It was really awesome. I'm Philip, and I've been in e-commerce in some capacity for 20 years, which is a very long time. And these days I run a media company that examines culture and commerce and how culture shapes the things we buy and where we buy them and how commerce changes the world around us. And so we do that today with four podcasts, soon to be five and three newsletters over at futurecommerce.com. And I'm proud to say we have 50,000 executives and operators, decision makers in the world of retailing and commerce that pay attention to what we do and yeah, just keep building. It's our seventh year. So wow. yeah, it's, it's pretty Speaking awesome. Speaking of uh, quality input, Future Commerce is actually one of about three newsletters of the 15 that I am signed up for that I actually read on a weekly basis because you guys do content in this industry in a way that I think is lacking. It's not just here's how to do this, X steps to do this. This is what's going on in the industry, period, end all, have, have fun with that information. You guys are diving into a lot of the like why and theory behind commerce and where we're headed, where we've been, how art and content is mixing into it, which is a topic that is very hot right now. And so mm. just just to completely give my full KLF plug, absolutely check out Future Commerce and everything they do because it will give you entertaining content on, on the e-commerce space that is very different from what I think a lot of our normal inputs are. And it makes us better in this industry to to get a little outside of the lines. Yeah, I think so too. And you know what you won't ever see from us unless it's, you know, unless we're making a piece of sort of like ironic or cynical content is you're never going to see like the 16 landing page tips that you need to convert better right now. <laughs> um, that's never going to be in your inbox. What you will get is a little bit of uh, what, you know, an art critic from 1972 had to say about the, you know, the the changing nature of the way that we see the world because photography changed the nature of how we experience art. And then we overlay that on, well, that's what's happening with commerce right now. It used to be that you went to a really tightly controlled experience in a retail store where you were treated like, you know, a king or a queen and waited on hand and foot. And now instead, you know, we're talking to chat bots and we have a... <laughs> a bright glowing screen in our pocket that represents those commerce experiences. And the nature of that 
changes over time. And the way that that changes changes the way that we level our expectations on the world around us and the expectations we have on brands. And if I can take a second, I, we put a lot of this into a lot of print production. Back in December, we released a 240-page coffee table book called Archetypes. I'm holding it up. Oh. I don't know if you have video or not. but It's beautiful, guys. Thank you very much. It's, it's, um, I'm going to try and explain this visually with my voice. <laughs> the cover is half and half uh, split between the top half, it's a horizontal split, 50-50. Top half, all white. It says archetypes in this beautiful font. Bottom half is this really artistic, kind of reddish, orange, fiery, glowy yeah. picture. Very <laughs> artistic, beautiful coffee table book. And also yeah. filled with stuff that you will read and like really digest. There is stuff that you guys have put out that sits in my brain for like years. Thank you. End, or we'll just kind of get caught in a loop of... All of a sudden, I'm dreaming about e-commerce somehow because you, <laughs> you've intercepted my thoughts and made it interesting again. In this particular, you know, in this particular piece, we you sort of open with this idea of like the Jungian archetypes, the jester, the ruler, the magician, the lover, the innocent, the caregiver, and so on. And, you know, it's an ex exercise that I think a lot of brands and brand builders have used for years, you know, maybe a century or more to think about your customers and who you want to try to attract and how you would speak to them on a way that feels intimate. And the real so what of it all is that I think that customers expect that you talk to them as people and that you're on their level no matter their archetype or no matter what they bring to that relationship. And so you can't just anymore to be a world-class brand, you can't just appeal to one person and one persona. You have to appeal to everybody and brands have to become faceted in that way. So you have a different persona as a brand on Twitter or on TikTok than you do in out-of-home advertising. And those things become very natural to us. If you've been in this business for a very long time, we try to make that fun and exciting and, you know, put that into ways that, you know, are unexpected and ex like, like I said, like just really insightful. We have a new book. I repped our old book, archetypesjournal.com to get that one. Our new book is called The Multiplayer Brand. And this is what you saw, Kristen, at a retail innovation conference. Every year we put together a trends report called Visions. And our, our Visions Trends report this year comes out on the 29th of June. Really excited about that. Visions.futurecommerce.com, by the way. We'll put uh, that in the show notes. And we have every year we go bigger and bigger. Last year, our trends report was like 100 slides. This year, it's a like a multiplayer take on the... I, my camera's not focusing. What is happening here? It's like a multiplayer take on what happens when, when brands do have to give in to the will of the crowd and how brands have to adapt to changing consumer expectations that you didn't create, you know, with mm. your relationship with the brand, but other brands have created in your stead. So the multiplayer brand talks about the future of commerce, participatory economies, and the age of critique and how people like Ashwin, Ashwin Krishnaswamy and other, you know, brand critics on TikTok are changing the way that we create things in the world. 100 page read on its own, but the, the multiplayer trends report will be out on Miro on the 29th. And that's visions.futurecommerce.com. I've done a lot of self-promoting here at the top. That's I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. That's what we got to do here. That's why I brought you on here. Is Thank because you. Because I said, you know what? My content is only going to be this exciting this week. I need to bring somebody <laughs> who's doing even more exciting stuff on. You're just making me look better uh, we can we can right bring there. all this home though right like i th we can make some of this real in in kind of doing that like recap of the week talking about some of the news items because i think there's a lot to say in this in the way that the world is changing and happy to sort of play along here i love i love the concept of this show and <laughs> and yeah 
I'm yeah. guide us, Kristen, guide us. Uh, I will. Let's start out with the Retail Innovation Conference because we both were moderators, speakers, being able to really like, I sat down and spent 45 minutes with multiple operators and like in real time got to hear what is going on in commerce, which is always the best way to figure it out. You know, the there's news out there, there's stories that are happening. But sometimes even the news that we talk about, like on this segment, the real operators are like, cool, cool, I have no time for that. I'm curious what you talk to lots of brands. What did you kind of come away with with some key themes from the conference? Because I've got a couple and they line up very well with what I've been talking about on the show. Yeah, there's well, there. somebody told me, I don't know, four or five years ago that the way that they get the most out of a conference is to look for three things. One something they can do right now Two, something that they can set as sort of a, a goal to get to in the future and three, something that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. And they look for those as sort of like a, a, a matrix or a rubric of like what, if I can go back to my team and say, we shouldn't be doing this, we should do this instead. And here's a goal for us to put out into the future. Mm-hmm. You could easily look at the retail innovation conference or any conference as a success if you can just walk away with those three things. If you spent enough time paying attention to the content of the track you were running, Kristen, in in sort of the CPG stage, I think is what you might call that. Mm -hmm. Uh, For us, it was like content community uh, in our track. If you just went and looked at some of those, you could easily fill out that scorecard. Hallway track alone, just having conversations with people, you can easily fill out that scorecard. And I heard a lot at the show about the things that I think might fill that scorecard out, especially about coming changes in the way that people are making investments in, in both technology and in brand and in the way that they're attracting customers into their stores. So there's a lot to say there. And I, yeah. we could like sort of do a beat by beat recap, but I think just generally, you know, if I'm being extremely honest, this show felt smaller this year, but bigger in some ways too. Your session seemed extremely popular and very crowded. I cannot <laughs> I say the, the same uh, of mine. <laughs> I got so. the benefit where they they put my stage right on the expo floor. So as long as my dad jokes were well-timed <laughs> and worth it, I got a lot of people Always stopping by. Also, pro tip, if you are ever in a position where you are running a stage where you just want to get bypassers, I wore a full checkered suit on the first day, which got, I mean, I think a lot of people stopped by just to go, what, what is this girl doing up here? And then I was telling terribly great jokes at the same time. So I was getting a lot of people. Yeah, I, I completely agree, though. There's so many different kinds of levels of conversations. What I kept seeing is the trends, both in what the speakers were talking about and the questions coming from the audience. Omnichannel is the the whole thing. I really wish we could come up with a better word for omnichannel, but the the conversation around D2C versus retail, and what I really liked is I had these conversations, especially with Calvin Lammers, who used to be at Truff. Oh, yeah. Necessaire. We love Calvin. Shout out. Him and I had a conversation about what he calls like D2C 3.0 and kind of mm-hmm. the role of D2C in today's commerce has completely shifted from... There was a time where we were all like, DTC is the new thing. Retail is going to die. And then COVID came and we were like, retail is dead. And now every brand is going, oh, wholesale retail. We got to push all in. Everybody from Magic Spoon to beauty brands, food and Bev to apparel. Everybody's thinking about retail now. And so it totally changes the conversation of 
how do you run D2C in this kind of retail heavy role and hearing how different brands think about the insights, the data, how they apply D2C to retail, how they keep those channels working together without cannibalizing each other. Very interesting conversations. The other things I heard a lot about. Can I jump in before you move yeah. on from Calvin? Yeah. Because we had Calvin on the Future Commerce podcast about two months ago. When he was I know, on, I used your interview as my entire prep for my interview. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> when Calvin was on, he was talking about sort of the uh, if you if you project forward the this idea of the retail media network, right? Uh, uh, on a long enough time horizon, every available pixel on any website from any brand eventually becomes monetized in some way. It's like we're going to turn an ad unit into every free amount of space eventually. What happened when he said that, I coined it Lammers Law yeah. for Calvin Lammers. But when he said that, it sort of made me notice that this is already happening. I mean, obviously, retail media networks is, is a big story in, in our industry, and it is the most profitable part of Amazon's business now. So it's hard to not notice it. And by the way, there's like, I think 32 retail media networks now from every freaking website uh, and every every retailer that has, you know, an audience. So it's it's a growing part of the business. But once you notice it, you can't unnotice it. And I yeah. I happened to be at the, the McCormick and I was calling a Lyft. And in my Lyft app, I was waiting for a driver and there's an ad for the new John Wick movie coming out on streaming. <laughs> I flipped over to Uber because my Lyft wasn't showing up on time and I flipped over to Uber and I called the Uber. As I'm getting into the car in the Uber, there's an ad for you know, some event taking place in Chicago. I think it was some sort of one of those candlelight sort of orchestral you know, performances. So this is happening right in front of our eyes. And I think that this is all, you know, if I had to guess a little bit, this is part of the maturity of e-commerce as to become a participatory channel where it's not just a brand on its own trying to attract an audience and sell to that audience. That audience is valuable for many parties. Disco is a really good early example of this. They turned their upsells into a marketplace where people could bid wow. in sort of an ad unit model post-purchase. So if you check out on Truff's website after the purchase, why wouldn't you find these other brands that other people also loved? So we're we're just doing more and more of that in, in the e-commerce space. And to be honest with you, it means e-commerce just looks a lot more like a traditional retail outfit yeah. these days because traditional retailers have done this for a century. Yes. So it means we're just getting more mature. That's that's my take. Sorry I interrupted yeah. you. Oh, no, I'm glad mm -hmm. you did. It it means to me it feels like commerce has always kind of been everywhere but a lot less trackable and noticeable mm -hmm. and now we're entering this almost like futuristic world where one day we're all going to have like visions coming up of ads that are popping up as we walk down the street like spider-man multiverse style <laughs> kind of lives that we're gonna live even to take this uh uber example further i had a friend who came and met me for lunch at the mccormick in chicago very similar had you know had to go lift and then uber had ads on both we were talking about literally everywhere you go somebody's gonna give you an ad for something and then she got in her uber and her uber driver 
offered her to try his new THC lemonade and did an entire <laughs> sales pitch and she walked away with a free trial and we were like, it's omni-channel, baby. It's everywhere. But, you know, it's funny that once upon a time, so this is to name drop like Nick Sharma, you know, his early talks around the guerrilla efforts to market Hint, you know, often included his, you know, hinge profile or something like that, where, you know, he would do these dates where he would just basically use it as an opportunity to grill a market hint. And I think that's really what it's all about, especially at the yeah. small end of small cap CPG, where the easier it is for anyone to create a product in this world and create a brand in this world, the, me the means that there, the harder it is for any one person to take notice of it. And the more, mm. the more one-to-one -one your efforts need to become in order to get people to take notice of something. You never know who's going to be sitting in your Uber. Yeah. And that seems like a really interesting story at some point, should that person find success. What's the name of that beverage, by the way? Do you know? I do not believe it had a name yet. There was no label on the bottle that I saw, but he had lots of facts. If so I we had to... questioning if he was going to, if she was going to actually try it or not, the safety of the, the trial. Oh, wow. Yeah. And now, now you're the focus group as well. Like you're, you're the QA. Uh, that seems very scary. On, on sort of the repping your friend's book of work, a good friend of mine here in West Palm Beach launched a THC beverage brand recently called Breeze, which you might have seen around. His name's Aaron Nosbish. And he and Nick Shackelford in, in the sort of DTC Twitter crowd, you know, have, you know, talked often about the, the limitations that you have around products like that actually breed innovation and it requires you to have to get really creative mm -hmm. in being able to talk about a product without actually talking about it and yeah. letting your customers do the talking for you in that way in no way am i red pilled but i would say that you know a a second term of a biden administration probably means a bigger crackdown from the federal trade commission on the solopreneur e-commerce shopify stores mm -hmm. because a lot of them are out of compliance with guidelines that the ftc could easily be, you know, on a on a warpath for uh, recently, the FTC just sued, they started uh, Amazon's a good example mm -hmm. of this. Uh, but uh, Amazon Prime recently sued for, you know, sort of nefarious or alleged nefarious actions and tricking people into sign signing up with Prime, according to the suit that was filed, they called this the operation internally was called the Iliad because they <laughs> wanted it to be such an arduous journey for a customer to try to cancel Prime. Wow. Um, and and this if you think that Amazon's the only actor in the space that's behaving this way, a lot of small brands behave this way, both in like reactivation campaigns in their email, yeah. um, in the way that they're setting up and launching membership programs without the thought of like what might happen when they try to encourage, when they try to discourage churn. I think a lot of brands might be found out of compliance with things like out of stock notices or low stock notices, perpetual strike through pricing. These are things that one day the rooster comes to roost <laughs> and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to face a challenge around your business practices and i think the age of ai actually makes it easier for things like governments to crack down and notice when someone's out of compliance in this regard it doesn't just take a customer complaint anymore and by the way uh this is anecdotal the number one source of ftc complaints are your competitors um, because yeah. they're police, they want to police you because they see it, you having an unfair advantage. So this is the era that we're in. And again, coming back to again, you know, just to be really self-referential, 
the future of commerce and participatory economies in the multiplayer <laughs> brand, you know, part of the participation in, in a space is that we're all having, we are competing with each other in mm -hmm. e-commerce for sure, but we can't compete each other out of business too much because we all depend on each other to continue to justify the existence of a market. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I think we all get that. Sorry. That was a lot of talking. I liked it. I liked it. And we, you as two podcast hosts get on a, a single podcast, it's the best because we will both lead each other into the next point. We're just cruising on in like the, yeah. you guys probably didn't even notice the little hook that Philip threw in there right onto news. It was beautiful. It was the first piece of news wanted to talk about FTC suing Amazon for using quote, deceptive tactics to sign up customers for prime. As you mentioned, Philip also to get them not to cancel by a million different steps, making it extremely diff difficult. We've been talking about this forever in subscriptions. Mm -hmm. um, there was at at Rice, the Retail Innovation Conference, Jennifer from Once Upon a Farm was one of my panelists, and she actually said something that was so perfect about this, where we were talking about the testing within subscription, and what she kept saying is the easier you make it for somebody to churn means the less churn you actually get, which seems so completely opposite of how it should work. If it's easy to cancel, they will cancel more often. What they have found is the easier they continue to make it for their customers to cancel, to skip, to like pause the subscription, actually the longer the LTV becomes because now these people kind of trust the brand. I feel like there's kind of this inherent mistrust of, if I want to cancel and you make me say no to 18 different clay, like, oh, but you could get it for 20% off, but you could get it for this. What about this free gift? Like there are ways that it really works. And sometimes offering, hey, don't cancel, just skip makes a lot of sense. But also when you've had to say no to like four offers, you're going, why would I have ever bought it at the full price? Anyways, I am annoyed with you. Get me off of this subscription. I am nothing but a number to you. <laughs> and you'll and never it, come back ever, right? Even when, even when times back. change, even when your mind changes, it, it puts off a customer, right? Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting to always watch what is happening at the top of the industry, because I think a lot of times, sometimes merchants go, you know, that's the FTC and Amazon, but they're giving you a pretty strong signal that this is where we're, we're headed in e-commerce, exactly mm -hmm. what you're saying. It's starting with Amazon because they're going to start at the top and then start to come down and trickle down. So brand and reason for existing and products that people actually want and need and that are good and useful are going to become more and more important to stay yeah. on this like high level e-com news. Let's talk about Walmart because if Amazon is number one in commerce, Walmart is number two. Yeah, and I have been very impressed with Walmart. I'm not going to lie. I think that they have really given Amazon a run for their money where they can. And there was a time where I thought, you know, Amazon's just going to take over the world. And our market is kind of giving it a little bit of a balance. But a new story, Walmart just announced competing sale at the same time as Amazon Prime's day. Yep. What do you think about that? The pettiness I kind of love. If I, you know, I love, well, I think this is the the nature of these sort of sales holidays is that, you know, no good sale can go un uncompeted. Everybody has to jump in on these sort of things. We've seen we've seen it in the past. Singles Day is a good example. Is that it becomes a sales event for everyone in the industry. The interesting thing about Prime Day is that it's coming with only three weeks' notice this year, and I think that that speaks to a little bit of hedging on 
maybe Amazon's part that others in the ecosystem are trying to ride coattails mm -hmm. and maybe like delaying it to the very last second as an announcement, maybe catches some folks on their back foot. Let me say this. I can only speak to my own lived experience. In the last year, the following things have happened. Number one, American Express launched for their platinum card holders, of which I'm I'm ancient, I'm very old, so now I am the platinum card <laughs> guy. They launched a free Walmart Plus subscription. And I thought to myself, that's strange. I don't consider Walmart Plus to be the kind of thing that a platinum card holder from American Express would entertain. <laughs> but I tried it, I got it, and I'll tell you what, I freaking love it. It's awesome. It's true same-day delivery, and they do marketing in a way that I really appreciate through the app in a way that makes me feel like Amazon takes advantage of me and my and my membership and my 13 years of, of not churning as a Prime member. So Walmart Plus is definitely top of mind for me these days when I'm looking at things. So that's happened. The other thing that's happened is the way that they're appealing to younger generations who have no perspective on what Walmart used to be, they only think yeah. of Walmart as one thing now, is a genius level move. My daughter, Camille, who just turned 12, sixth grade going into seventh grade now, on her birthday, Kristen, I said, today we can do anything you want to do. What do you want to do for your birthday? And she said, I quote, I want to go to Jamba Juice for a smoothie. And then I want to go to Walmart because I've never been to Walmart before. Oh. And, yeah. I, and I realized, brilliant. am I raising them right or wrong? They've never been to Walmart. <laughs> Who knows the answer to that one? <laughs> I think the kids are going to be okay is what I'm trying to say. I, you yeah. know, I think that, and she was also flabbergasted when she went there and she herself w was able at 12 years old to sort of give you the difference between a Walmart and a Target and a Costco. Wow. Like she could tell you, oh, I would go to Walmart for this and very impressed with like the size and scale of a Walmart. I think that the Walmart and Target shopper in the ways that they are fundamentally different people or have different modes in their brain of why they would go to one or the other is a very similar effect to the Walmart plus or walmart.com shopper to an amazon.com prime subscriber. And I think, I mean, I, I, you know, this is just my own thought. I, I think that there's a very strong possibility that the Amazon day prime subscriber shopper has no awareness of Walmart's dealings and vice versa. And they play in these very separate playgrounds in consumer psychology, and they occupy different places in the brain. So behaviorally, it makes a lot of sense for the ecosystem to all concentrate all of that behavior all at one time, especially around back to school. I think it makes yeah. sense. But it is very me too. <laughs> what about what about us? You know, it's a funny it's a funny thing. What's your experience with Walmart? What what do you are you a frequenter of Walmart these days, Ooh, Kristen? Great question. You, you brought up that real, real loyalists to Amazon Prime probably don't know about Walmart Plus. And that was my experience as somebody who's just been, I'm still using like my brother's Amazon Prime, right? I'm not even paying it for my for myself. I'm a full-blown adult and I'm not paying for it, but I'm using it all the time. And mm -hmm. I've even said in the last couple of months, I've used Amazon Prime a lot more than I used to as well there's just been a lot of like little stuff that I need to buy. And I'm always thinking about it at the last minute. And then starting this podcast, it's like Walmart, Walmart, Walmart. It's in almost every week they're doing something. 
And the more I watch Walmart, the cooler I think that they are. And it's <laughs> that's almost what they want. going back. Yeah, that's what they want. It's almost going back to, which is so interesting. Like when I was growing up, the Walmart I remember were the commercials with the little bouncy smiley face that would like cross out the price. <laughs> yep. Everyday low price. <laughs> yeah, everyday low price. That was when I was, you know, young. And then I do remember in high school, I feel like a lot of people did this. Like sometimes we'd go to the mall and walk around, but mm-hmm. we couldn't really afford that much stuff at the mall. So you just kind of walk around. And sometimes we'd just go to Walmart, go to Walmart. and spend a couple hours in Walmart. That's right. And you could always find something that you got excited about. Like one night we got like a snow cone maker and did that at a friend's house. Like Walmart kind of became this fun, silly destination. And I didn't even remember that until you were just talking about your daughter saying, I want to go to Walmart. And then imagining like as a birthday, getting to just walk through Walmart and look at all the stuff and kind of get what you want. Like it's a playground, but it is so different than Target. And so that it's a very interesting time. I'm also right in that that cohort of consumers where American Eagle is also super popular and coming back. And Abercrombie and Fitch mm-hmm. is popular. And, co- and I just bought six shirts from Abercrombie. Those were the things that were popular when I was in sixth grade that I yep. couldn't afford to buy. Couldn't afford them. Right. That yeah. I think that that's something that's overlooked in this discourse, too, is that the, you know, never, you know, the power of nostalgia in the way that we we grow up and we want to become the person that we always wanted to be. And you kind of become, uh, I'm sort of on the cusp of elder millennial, so I'll call myself an elder millennial <laughs> at this point, geriatric millennial. You kind of like want to be that person that you aspired or, or like you were jealous of or couldn't be when you were younger. Mm-hmm. And I, I I do remember like I had the same sort of upbringing, couldn't shop at mall brands, yeah. never would have, not in a million years, never would have bought a pair of Nike shoes. Like we we absolutely had like Walmart and Payless shoes. That, oh, was, yeah. my, that was my growing up. TJ and so Maxx and Kohl's were my mom's absolute favorite destinations. And had to be, right? I think when, especially if, you know, especially in an era that where knowledge work necessarily wasn't like a, it, you know, it was like the white collar job was this like small yeah. echelon of, of society. So we have this amazing opportunity in this day and age to like become that person that we always dreamed of becoming. And yeah. that is that is a thing that all of these brands are not just beneficiaries of right now, Kristen, but they're also playing into heavily. And this is the psychology of brand. We talk about this a lot on future commerce is the the sort of weaponization of nostalgia because they know that people who have an affinity for these legacy brands like an Abercrombie and Fitch who couldn't afford it back then can absolutely afford it right now. So they're playing both high and low. They're going after people who have a nostalgia for something they missed out on in their childhood. And they're also going after those people's kids or people that are of the current era to cement their future. So like the best time to plant a trade, a shade tree is what 20 years ago. And the second best Mm -hmm. time is today. And that's the, that is what we're seeing play out right now in sort of the resurgence of the mall brand and you make a brilliant point there in your own experience yeah it is the it's so crazy that you know when i was young and if i got to go to abercrombie and fitch 
one, I was always way too small for Abercrombie and Fish, so I had to go shop in the stupid kids section because I was a little <laughs> gymnast. And so I remember being like, one day I'll be able to buy the real clothes that all the teenagers wear. <laughs> and you almost think like on the surface, when I become an adult, I'm going to want to not shop in those places, but I'm going to want to shop at like a higher tier. But really what it is is like, oh, I'm now, I can walk into Abercrombie and Fitch and I can buy whatever I want yeah. with my money and I will find something that fits me with my money. I don't have to, my mom My mom didn't give me $20 to try and figure out how I'm gonna, you know, buy a shirt and pants with. It's, I can do whatever I want. I've even seen my husband do this. Walking yes. through REI, it's the experience of like, oh, I get to be the kid in this store again. And it is amazing <sighs> that these are brands that were around and popular and I walk through them all the time, but I didn't, I had no understanding of how deeply intrinsic they became into my identity or my ideal identity mm. until now when I'm looking back and going like, yeah, now I can walk around Walmart. Last time I went to Walmart, it was because I needed a Star Wars shirt for a one-year-old <laughs> Star Wars birthday. And I walked out with like one of those, you know, the the big always the cages of like bouncy balls that always looked really fun and your mom would let you play with one then yeah. you put it back. I walked out with one of those. I didn't need that. I had like four t-shirts. I had all these random things. I bought this kid like four different toys because I was just like, I can do whatever in this Walmart. It's amazing how, well, how when you have kids, that. But one thing I've noticed is like when, when you have kids and I, I do this for myself, you know, I live out my, the, the childhood I wish I had yeah. by giving them things that I know that like would never I never would have like that I guess that's how oh, kids yeah. become spoiled this is how we create like the bad actors in society is people like me <laughs> having to impose <laughs> on my kids you know the the childhood I didn't have again like touching on things that we talk about at future commerce and how we were differentiated in in the media ecosystem around like e-commerce or retail we think a lot about these like the psychological philosophical mm -hmm and sociological impacts that commerce has. And, you know, there's, there's, there's like things like a choice supportive bias that, you know, in, in psychology is this sort of cognitive bias around this idea that you remember your choices being better than they actually were. And so you, you have this, this nature, this tendency to think that because you chose something or because you had this ideal of something at one point in time, that it, it is, it is a desirable and superlative product or a, a better mm. experience. And this is how people get into arguments about like, I don't know, which Apple versus Android. right, which exactly which <laughs> cell phone is better is that there's yeah. a, there's a choice supportive bias in that you're also trying to rationalize to yourself that the thing you bought was worth the time and money that yeah. went into it. And that plays very strongly into this thing called social identity theory, which has like a really strong impact in the way that people like relate to each other because people form in groups around stuff like that. And I remember being in the out group as somebody who wasn't in the in group of the wearing of the gap or the Abercrombie shirt. Yep. And yep, you form same. this again, there's it's sort of a choice supportive bias of that. I couldn't of my own nature in, at 14, 15, 16 years old choose to buy from the gap, which, mm -hmm. you know, back then was an aspirational brand. And so yeah. when I became of a certain age and I, I always my wanted money, one of those old Navy the, 4th of July shirts. Yes. I never got and everybody else did. And my mom was like, well, wear a red shirt and blue jeans. Come on. <laughs> it's funny. I, so this is like way too much information, but we're already far down <laughs> that rabbit hole. I dated a girl. 
<laughs> when I was in, <laughs> when I was in high school, and she was a huge fan of Old Navy. She had a her her dad, I think, was in defense industry. They had a really nice house with a pool, so you know that they were doing mm-hmm. well. And they. She had a car. She was given a car at 16 years old, right? So she was like, in my mind, you know, rich bitch. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> and I was dating her. I, she had terrible taste, obviously. But <laughs> she would make a trip specific because there was no Old Navy in Florida at the time. And this is mid 90s. It was like a destination, like a yeah. trip they would go to. Later on in life, H&M became that trip because there were very few H&Ms in the country, became that trip for for them. It The price point didn't matter. It was the the fact that there was very few of those places to go. You couldn't buy them online. Yeah. And so that, again, just to come back to the psychological effects here is it has very little to do, I think, with price and more about your perception of being seen as someone different or someone that's set apart by the thing you have and to my kids and this is maybe like a point of pride for me and that we made it in life to some degree and we are officially middle class yay (laughs) my kids had never stepped foot into a walmart until this year and maybe they they're worse for that or better for that i don't know but for me the choice support of bias there is that we've been target shoppers for the whole of their lives and so now they get to experience a different way of seeing the world through the eyes of a Walmart shopper. And I think that that's really, for me, super interesting just to examine yeah. Gen Alpha and how they relate to the world around them through the brands they buy. They're so cool. Gen Z and Gen Alpha are so cool. They scare so cool. me. Like I, I'll walk down yeah. the street and I'm like, oh, the teenagers don't look at me. My hair is still side parted. I'm still wearing skinny <laughs> jeans because your mom jeans never fit me. Oh, you're so cool. I never thought I'd be in that that place, but I'm like, right. Yeah, they're they're way cooler than I was at this age. Way for cooler. Sure. Oh my God. They know so much more. I oh, so and they can take you down them. too. They can take oh, they you can. down. So like it's it they can dismantle you. They were raised on a uh you know on a media diet that has been extremely cynical about the uh-huh. the like role of media. My kids in elementary school, I'm a big believer in public schools and you know we we I've been very impressed with the school system here, despite it being in Florida and everything you read on the news. There is a lot of media literacy that's taught to kids in, in elementary school about learning to recognize sensational headlines, what clickbait is, and how to find and source multiple sources for a story, how to recognize an authoritative source, and when to when to you know, call out or when to recognize disinformation, yeah. or misinformation. This is starting to happen. This is why I think the kids will be okay, is that this is happening not just for the political news, but also in the way that things are sold to you, how influencer yeah. campaigns are, are structured, how FOMO is developed. Kids are learning this right now in the public school system, in my kids' public school system, from the age of six, seven, eight, and nine years so old. Cool. And so that cool. that's what makes me feel like I think we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll be okay. I think we're going to oh. be okay. <laughs> I hope so. I love that. Despite I know. Lammers um, Law. We're going to be okay. Lammers Law. We're going to be okay. I love that we're just shouting out Calvin, who's not even here. We'll bring him on sometime. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Oh, we talked at the beginning. Lots of, lots of new drink launches all the time. It's really kind of the only news that's consistently coming out is new snack, new skincare, new CBD, new drink, new food, new this, celebrity brand this. So there are lots of launches going on and it sometimes is super exciting. Sometimes is like, goodness gracious, can we not like 
literally uh, this morning my husband pulled out energy drinks and he was like oh yeah it's the rocks energy drinks i was like does the rock have enough money yet or is he good like he's got tequila going he's got the movies he's got wwe in his back he's got everything like come on we don't need energy drinks too but i did want to ask have there been any new product launches that have caught your eye i can go first because there's one that ties in very closely to nostalgia as well for me do you remember carnation's breakfast essentials of course i i i was a big fan of carnation's instant breakfast line of ready mix i wish that i could still have them and not understand the nutritional impact that they may have i am somebody who does not like breakfast has a hard time eating breakfast but those especially in college when i was an athlete and burning a million calories a day as a kid, I always wanted them, never got them. So in college, that's pretty much what I had. Every once in a while, if I'm feeling lazy, I might do it for a week. They have come out with some new flavors of breakfast essentials. Girl Scout cookie inspired flavors. Uh, Just bring it all on, the way around with that nostalgia. That hits on everything. Like that is the <laughs> that is the like Venn diagram. Uh, it's, <laughs> it is CPG. It is a beverage. It is a nostalgic brand and it is a sort of breakfast or meal replacement that, you know, also has a licensing play. Yeah. That's like, I can't think of a better story. I was going to mention Gorgie. Yeah. And and the reason I was going to mention it is twofold. One, Michelle Cordero Grant, who launched Love it, uh, formerly built. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Incredible. Formerly built. Oh, gosh. Now the name escapes me. Oh, uh, Lively. Sold to yeah, Lively. Sold to Wachol uh, a number of years ago. Frequent guests on the Future Commerce podcast and very transparent and open about her journey in, in creating and selling the, the Intimates and women's apparel brand, Lively. Now in beverage. And... When you feel like, this is a good example of, again, media literacy. When you feel like something is ever-present, it's because something really right happened in the way that they've architected a media campaign to be everywhere all at once. And the thing to watch for, so Gorgie is everywhere right now. People are now starting to talk about it. A number of profiles with Michelle have landed in a bunch of journals all at the same time. Great out of home that's happening, you know. What's really interesting is that need that can't it's expensive to pull off that kind of a campaign through through PR. Mm-hmm. What I like to see is how can they turn that into something that's sustainable yeah. in a way that like Graza and some others have been able to do by activating a community of people to do that sort of UGC on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you cannot sustain that kind of product momentum and ubiquity in like media coverage forever unless there's something new to talk about all the time like new skew drops so michelle really rooting for her she's also a new transplant to florida since the pandemic Um, and a big south florida startup community builder now down here she's doing amazing things one Um, of the very first founders i ever interviewed when i got into my podcasting world yes i absolutely love her and have been rooting for her i think the drink space is really hard. And if anybody is going to crush it, it's her because she understands and she has understood retention and yeah. community and turning attention. And this, I think, is is what you're hitting on what we're seeing all the time, turning attention into an actual longstanding brand and a thing that exists beyond the attention because mm. it's easy to get the news. It's not easy, but you know, a lot of times you'll see products go viral and then two months later that that company's gone. And 
Michelle has done a really good job in the past with Lively was really one of the first like offered half size bras. Yeah. They came out swinging and she built something that Pun lasted. intended. Pun intended. <laughs> Not swinging, I guess. <laughs> oh, I'm excited for somebody to take a, a good 30 seconds to figure out that joke there. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, what what I will say, and and I can, you know, I, I'll obviously it's just so so awesome to be on here. Thank you for having me. But what I will say is that it's extraordinarily hard to build a business of any kind. And I think that one thing that's been really difficult in the last few years here, especially as businesses are no longer big corporations launching big products, but they are people like solo founders that are tied intrinsically to the brands they create is that it makes it very hard to not like something. Yeah. And this is the this is the the conundrum is I I just talked about Gorgie. I have never tried this drink. Okay? Me neither. And this is the 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 state of the industry that we're in right now is that I effectively gave you an implicit endorsement of the quality of something or you may have read into that and I have never tried it for myself and I'm not going to go out of my way to go try it. If I happen across it then great. But that is the nature of the the state of the e-commerce and CPG and DTC communities is that we are all fans of people and we are rooting for people and the products come second. But in the mind of the customer, the product is first and they don't give a damn about the people. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we had more criticism, again, coming back to the multiplayer brand, the future <laughs> of commerce participatory economies and the age of critique, a book out now by Future Commerce. I think the criticism is well appreciated when it comes from a genuine place is not to tear down the people that make the stuff in their livelihood and and to make personal attacks, but to really talk about your experience of how things could have been better and why yeah. they didn't live up to the hype. And this is the unfortunate reality is like a lot of our ecosystem really depends on that word of mouth and hype because it's so expensive to be everywhere all at once. Very few can architect it the way Michelle has. And, and yeah, I, I think that that is just to be self-critical is, you know, we need more critique in our ecosystem about yeah. like, what are the motives to share something like that. And that's why I gave that perspective. So, yeah, very yeah. important to remember that we do as operators and founders and quote unquote experts or people who sit on mics and talk about brands for a living, like we somehow managed to do <laughs> in our careers is that actually the best person you can ask is probably not me or Philip or Twitter or LinkedIn, but instead the customers that have actually bought the products. And I can almost guarantee they will tell you how they feel about the products. They probably won't even really know all that much about the founder story. It might be an addition, but at the end of the day, the product is what the consumers, the real true consumers, like yep. muggle consumers, if, if you want to put it that way, where like the, the wizards over here that we know too much about it, they're going to give you different answers. And sometimes just a good reminder to like, get out of this bubble, go talk to the people that are actually buying it because it's not people sitting on Twitter talking about what branding means for their entire lives. Like it's we true. Are. It's true. And, and, you know, you know, referencing dead philosophers ideas that, that always goes really well too. And <laughs> <laughs> depending on who it is, that's receiving it. Thank you, Kristen. I, I, I love this. Can't wait to do this again with you at some point. Yes. We're going to have to have you back because I'm sure the news will seem slightly different, but we'll probably come down to the same conclusion as we always do. Commerce is about 
connecting people to people and things that people need and also very emotionally and psychologically driven on top of all of it. So when you see all this stuff about Amazon and the FTC and Walmart and all this, I hope that episodes like this help help our operators kind of get out of the matrix of it a little bit. So I really appreciate you coming on. Listeners, I will make sure everything that Philip mentioned is in our show notes. And also I'll give you guys a place to follow him and I both on Twitter. If you have any feedback, questions, concerns, we love to talk, especially if you disagree with us. Philip and I love, love a good, we love, love a that. good argument. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Philip. Especially I texted you this morning and you came on last minute. You're the best. Thank you. And thanks to Recharge. Appreciate that.